and welcome to the FSF and Tapestry podcast. Um, I'm Jules and today my colleague Anya and I are joined by um, freelance nurture consultant Sonia Mainstone-Cotton. Hi Sonia, it's lovely to Hi. see you. Thank you, nice to be here. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's good. Excellent. So um, we're going to let you introduce yourself but in, a, in I hope a really lovely way for this podcast today. So in your book, Supporting Young Children Through Change and Everyday Transitions, you talk about having an all about me kit um, to share with children to tell them about yourself. Um, and I wondered if you could introduce yourself for the podcast and tell us, tell us a bit about yourself by sharing what's in your all about me kit. I will. Yeah, thank you. So um, this is a new all about me pick it because I'm going into school in September. So I've, I've, I've improved it, I think. So first of all, to say I work with children with four year olds who are just starting school, who have social, emotional, mental health needs. So I go in and see them. So I'm Sonia. So I'll, I have a little kit of things to talk to them about who I am and what I do and what I like because we're really busy at finding out from children about themselves and I think it's quite important they know about me. So I'm Sonia and I really like swimming. Swimming is a really really important part of my life and I children love to be able to um, relate to that so this time this year I have a new swimming toy that I've made which I'm quite pleased with her so that's me and I really like spending time in the garden so when I need to feel a little bit calmer, I swim and then I spend quite a lot of time in the garden. So I really like enjoying growing flowers. So that's one of my flowers. And I like watching the bees in my garden. And quite often when I'm working with children, we go outside and we will look for bees and we will look for flowers. And sometimes we'll grow flowers and see if bees will come to them. And I live with my husband called Ian. And I have two children called Lily and Summer, but they're big girls now and they don't live in my house anymore. Um, so one of them is about to live in Edinburgh and one of them is about mm. to live in Exeter. So they're moving away, even further away from where they are. But those are my children. And I'm really a bit scared of something. And I am very, very scared of mice. Now, this is my toy mouse. And I don't mind my toy mouse. My children bought it for me. They thought it was quite funny. But I am very, very scared of mice. They make me feel really jumpy and my heart goes really fast when I see them. When I come into school and I see children, I will often bring in things that we can play with. And one of the things that we do a lot is we blow bubbles. And I do lots of sensory play. Sometimes we do other play as well. And I like to use things in my play which are things that the children like and things that I like. And one of the other things that I like is owls. And I've got a family of owls that live near my house that sometimes I see when I go for a walk early in the morning and sometimes I hear them at night. And this owl set is a, a little set where it's got different size owls inside each other. So that's something about me. Thank you, Sonia. That was lovely. And I should just say um, that Sonia, whilst she was talking about those things, she, you were actually holding them up as well so that we could see all the little things that were in your All About Me kit. And something that really struck me when I read about that in your book was we often think about those kinds of ideas, create an All About Me box or an All About Me bag or whatever for children and for families do together. But I'm not so sure we think about it so often for the adult who's going to work with the children in that way of, of, of kind of that relationship building. Is that 
is that really helpful for that kind of thing when you're doing that when you're meeting children it's really helpful so the work I do now I'm going into my seventh year of, of doing this particular work with children with social emotional mental health needs but before that I used to work for a children's charity and I worked a lot where I was training social workers and education people as well and sometimes I will be working with children and I was aware that often as professionals we go in and our job particularly if you're a family support worker you go in and your job is to find out as much as you can about the family and about the child and you're asking them so many questions and as educators it's exactly the same you know I'm going in and I I already have a lot of paperwork on those children that are seeing in September but my job in those early days is to find out what do they like what don't they like and that's great but actually these children are going to spend a year with me. I'm going to be with them every week visiting school. Now it gets to the point where generally they really like seeing me because I bring in nice things. But at the start, they don't know who I am. And there's a strange other adult. And who is she? And actually it really begins to break down things. And the reason why, so I talk about things in there that I enjoy that are important to me. So swimming is a really, really important part of my life. You know, I talk about my family, but explain that my children don't live with me. Now that's really important for the new children I'm working with because I know I have three children next year who don't live with their birth parents. Mm -hmm. So actually understanding that families are all very different and we don't always live together and that's okay. But also putting in something about what I don't like, that's really, or what I'm scared of, that's really key. Children love that. So you can be sure one or two children next year will really get onto that idea of a mouse, will think it's hilarious to tell me that they've, come, they've seen a mouse and that kind of thing. That's, that's great and that's fine. But it's all, and I genuinely am scared of mice, like, you know, that I'm not making that up. I am genuinely absolutely terrified of mice. But it also talks about fears in that way of it's okay and throughout the year I'm going to be doing so much work with those children about feelings and emotions but actually being able to talk about I find mice really scary and that's okay it's all right and this is what it does to me so it's that kind of gentle introduction um but it works it just really works it really breaks it down so I'm you know I have the kit is, is very similar to what I've had before. I've changed it slightly. I had a swimming doll that um, you could wind up, but limbs kept falling off it, which is why I've made a new one because that was just annoying me. But it's, it's a really lovely way of children being able to engage. And I'll take it back, you know, as we go on um, so they can look at it and play it again. And then they're able to tell me things that they like, who's in their family, if they want to, all those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. I really noticed when you were telling us you're all about me, that part where you shared your own emotions and how that can be such a supportive thing to do for children to show them that this is a safe space for us to share our emotions with each other. And I'll go first and then when you're ready, you can go. Yeah. And so I think in reflecting that, you're also supporting the transition of the process that they're with you. Yeah. and. I suppose we were wondering what do you mean by everyday transitions and what can adults do to support children around these kinds of tr uh, transitions as well? It's a really good question. So all my work is around transitions. It's all about talking transitions. I seem to spend all year doing that. And I think quite often as adults, we're really good at talking about those big transitions. So a child starting school, for example, we all know that's a huge transition or a child starting nursery or a big one like a new baby arriving. And I think we're quite good at preparing children for those. But actually, we all go through really small transitions in the day. 
And if you just think for a moment about, you know, at the moment we're, we're filming this at about 10.40, how many transitions have you already had at this point in the day? So I got up early, I've, been, I've got in my car, I drove to the pool, I went swimming, I came home, I had coffee, I had breakfast, I've done some work this morning, you know, I'm now doing an interview with you. I've dealt with some things with my daughter, dealt with some things with my husband, that sounds really, you know, but just conversations that you need to have. Lots and lots of little changes. And it's exactly the same with children. So the children that we work with will have lots of small changes through the day. And some children cope with that fine. Some children are absolutely not phased and take anything. But quite a few children can find that a bit tricky. So it's breaking that down. So one of the things I often get practitioners and parents to do is think about how many, just take your morning, how many small transitions are there in your morning? They're getting up, they're getting changed, they're feeding, you know, all those sorts of things. And actually, if your child is regularly finding something difficult, just break that down and look at, okay, which bit is it they're finding hard? And then why? Is it, sometimes it's as simple as, the routine has changed and they don't like it and they're not prepared. So that's where visual timetables and schools and settings are just so good. So one of the first conversations I'll be having next week in schools are, what's your visual timetable? Can you do an individual one for the children that we're working with? Because they will probably need that as well as the class one. And if you haven't got one, please do one. So it's those sorts of things. They're really important. But it's also the pre-warnings. So... I often say to people, you know, if you were sat in the living room and you were reading a book and, and had a cup of coffee and suddenly your partner came in and said to you, handed you your coat and said, come on, we're going. And they didn't tell you where you were going. They didn't give you any warning. You might be quite cross. I would be really irritated if my husband did that. But we do that to children all the time. So it's that whole, well, what do you do? You pre-warn them. So I still do that with my, you know, my youngest daughter is home at the moment, about to go off to uni for a second time. And I, you know, she's 22, but I will still pre-warn her if we're going out. I'll say, oh, Summer, we're going out in five minutes, so that she knows, so that she's prepared. Because that's just courteous, isn't it? And that's, that's what I mean by those every day. How do we support those every day? So those pre-warnings, pre-warning before lunch. And even if it's not a verbal, you could do a visual. So if it's a really little child who doesn't have much verbal understanding, you could show them, show them their code. We're going out in five minutes. Even though five minutes won't mean anything to them, they've seen the, the code and they've got that visual cue. So it's just breaking it down. And I think sometimes we're really good at it but I've reflected that actually our lives have become really busy. Um, in some ways, the beauty of COVID was our lives slowed down massively. And I think that was beneficial for probably quite a lot of people. But I don't know about you, but I'm aware it's really hotting up again. <laughs> you know, it's getting busier again. And some children find that quite hard, all those changes. So another question is, do we have to have all those changes? In a setting, do you have to keep stopping and starting? And schools generally are the worst at this, in my experience. So I work in reception classes, and quite often we see more stopping and starting in schools than we do maybe in early year settings. And it's just, my, my, my support to staff as well as to children is to ask those questions sometimes and go, oh, I wonder whether we need all of those. <laughs> Can we have a few less, maybe? 
Do they need to go to assembly every day at the age of four? Maybe not. And that might be a conversation I have with their head teacher as well. <laughs> yeah. It, it really made me reflect on how I wouldn't necessarily think of all of those things, those little tiny everyday things as transitions and change. But they really are. They really are a moment of change and transition. As you said, we tend to think of those, often those words tend to be attached to, to bigger things, yeah. but actually they happen. And, and that expression, everyday transition, really resonated with me and made me reflect on my time, both as a parent when I had younger children and also as an early years practitioner as well, about all of about each time you, you do one of those things, changing a nappy, you know, um, as you say, leave, leaving, having lunch, stopping, tidying up time, you know, it's all a transitional moment for that child. And it can be exhausting, I, I can imagine. Yeah. And that's not to say that we don't have to have them. And I think, you know, it, some of it's inevitable. We do need some yeah. of those, but we don't necessarily need all of them. And like I said, some children cope really well. So you might have a group of 30 children and find that 25 of them, it's no problem at all but you may have four or five who actually find that quite tricky. Yeah. And so it's then thinking, okay, how can we make this work for everybody and how can it work for that particular child? So it might be that you're, I mean, the classic is the ringing the bells, five minute warning for, for tidy up. And that's okay for most of your children. Yeah. But generally the children I work with will also need an adult to go up to them individually and say, we are tidying up soon. And this is what we're going to do. Or if you've got a child, I mean, the classic is tidying up. Most of the children generally that I work with find tidying up really difficult, and I get that. Um, so it may be that you, you say to them, we're tidying up in a few minutes. Me and you are going to do the farm because that's what you've been playing with. So you name specifically, so it's not this big, open-ended. And if that's still really tricky, you break it down again. Do you know what? It's tidy up time. Could you find me two cows to help me tidy up? And I'm going to do these things. So it's really breaking it down into small achievable. It's kind of, we talk, I mean, we often talk, choose your battles, <laughs> choose your battles. And, and I, I think that's probably been my mantra through most of my <laughs> early years and definitely as a parent. Um, but, you know, break it down, break it down, break it down. And, and if a child needs that little bit more support around it, that's fine. Give it to them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in your book, and I think it also was in the article that you've written for us, Sonia, about that kind of question. Is it ever too early to support a child through change? Um, and I wondered if you could just talk about that a bit, your, your thoughts about whether it's ever too early. Yeah, I don't think it is ever too early. I think, I think it's about supporting children with change is about really good communication. And we need to have really good communication with children from birth, I believe. Mm -hmm. So when a baby is born and you've put, you know, you, a baby is crying and you know that you need to go over to them. So as a parent or as a carer, practitioner you go over to the baby and you pick them up and as you pick them up you're talking to them mm -hmm. and you're saying oh I can see you're really sad you're crying lots I wonder whether you're hungry it's okay I'm going to feed you now mm -hmm. so the child isn't going to obviously a new baby isn't going to understand those words to start mm -hmm. with but what it is going to understand is 
it's been picked up, it's been comforted, its needs are being met. And it will slowly begin to learn and understand what those words mean. And that it can trust those adults and adults will meet their needs and are validating their feelings. So we talk a lot. So in my job, we're always talking about the importance of validating a child's feelings. But actually, you're doing that right from the moment with a baby. It's, it's good practice. And I think it's something that people do, but aren't necessarily then joining the dots of, oh, yeah, actually, this is really, I'm not, you know, this is not rocket science. This is good practice. But it's then joining it up and going, of course, yes, actually, I am preparing them. Or in the same way, you go over to the baby and you talk to them about, we're going to go out now. I'm going to put your coat on. I'm going to change your nappy. I can smell. You definitely need changing. We're going to change you. So you're giving them that commentary. Now, we know that's really important, obviously, for children's brain development, because the more we talk to children, the more their brains are developing, and then they're going to be able to learn those communication skills, which we know are so vital. But not only is it good for that, it's also really important because you're, you're naming those feelings and emotions when, when they're babies. So they're growing up with that. You're validating how they're feeling. You're recognizing that those feelings, emotions are neither good or bad. They just are. So that's all really important. And you're preparing them for those transitions. So when you then have a two and a half year old who's throwing a real wobbler because they you know, really don't want their coat on, you're then able to use those words of, oh, I wonder if you're really cross because I've asked you to put your coat on and I can see you're really, really stamping your foot. I know you're really cross, but I need you to do this right now. So it's just continuing it, isn't it, as, as they begin to get older. And then when they're older still, you can have more of a conversation with them. Or sometimes there will come a point where you are saying to your six-year-old, I know you don't want to do that, but right now I am the parent and this is what we are doing. I can see you're really mad about it and I hear that, but we are doing this because we need to. And I'm the parent and I'm making that choice. Mm, yeah. I think, sorry, I was just, you just made me think that it's it's really great to be aware of all of this child development and how your language um, impacts brain development and the connections that are made and we can be so aware of that and we can be so aware of being able to reflect emotions and validate and empathize and use the wonderful phrase I wonder if and then it comes down to using it in practice mm. and you when you just said I can see that you're angry or you're upset. I wonder if it's, but I still need you to do that. And it is that, isn't it? It's that being able to wander with them and empathize and show that you understand you're there, but we are still within a school day or we are still trying to do this task and I still do need you to do it. And it is that. And I think in the early years, you know, we know that it's always been important for early years educators to have good knowledge of child development. And this is at the forefront of the um, changes to the EYFS. And you also talk about the importance of early years educators having an understanding of brain development and neuroscience. And so could you explain a little bit more about this? And then I guess in reflection to what you were just saying, how we use that in practice. Yeah, so I think, I mean, when I started my early years degree, my goodness, 15 years ago probably when I did that um, 
the understanding of brain development was was kind of just coming on board. It wasn't. So when I did my NNEB years ago, when I was 16 to 18, brain development was not really there at all. Um, and then when I years later, as a mature student, did my did my early years degree and then MA, it was it was a, there was a greater understanding, and that's just grown and grown, hasn't it? And I think for me, it's about trying to um, trying to understand how how the baby's brain works and what impact we have as practitioners and as parents. So the whole um, recognizing that a child, the feelings and emotions that a child is going through and how we can name that and that's really helpful for them. I think that's really important that we embed a good emotional language from birth again. I think that's really, really vital. Um, But also recognizing that when a two and a half year old is having an absolute tantrum, this isn't a chosen thing. This isn't about, or even a four-year-old having a meltdown. This isn't about them intentionally choosing to be naughty, which is what we sometimes heard. And that's not a phrase I would use, but that's sometimes what we hear. But actually, it's about a child going into that complete dysregulation where their brain is going back to those really early development limbic systems of that fight and flight. And you've asked them to do something, they feel massively threatened and they go into fight and flight and they have an explosion and no part of their thinking brain is working. So they're kicking off. Now, the reason why it's important for us to have an understanding of the brain development is If you don't have that understanding, you could look at that child and think they're two years old and they're intentionally having a massive tantrum on me because they are being really naughty or they want, they, they think if they do this, then they're going to get their way and they're not. Now, the problem with that, if you don't have a good understanding of the brain development is you're seeing them in a real deficit model for a start. You're, you're not understanding what's going on for the child And it's all going to end in tears for everybody. (laughs) You know, already has ended in tears for the child. It's not going to be great for you either. So why do I think we need to have an understanding of brain development? It's because it helps us as practitioners and parents be better. Having said that, it can be mightily confusing. Now, I need to have a really good understanding of brain development for the level of the job that I'm doing. And most people don't need that level. But it, I mean, I find it really interesting, but I also find it, if I'm honest, I find it quite difficult. I am not a sciencey person. I have science. I have a daughter who's a brilliant scientist. I am not a sciencey person. I find it really hard to retain some of those words that go with the brain. You know, some of those ideas. I find that I have to read it and read it and read it to really get it to stick. And that's okay because I do understand the basics of it. So we don't, If you hear the idea of brain development and go, oh my God, that's just way too complicated for me. I can't go there. Don't let that put you off. Go and read some stuff that's really accessible. And the person that I found really helpful is Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson. So they're both doctorates. They've both written some brilliant books. Um, The Whole Brain Child is one of them. They've written several ones. But what I like about those books is they're written for parents but as practitioners are really useful, but because they're written for parents, they're really accessible. And they're talking about in a really easy way to understand what's going on in your brain, in your child's brain and how they're developing. And so when they're behaving in certain ways, where that's coming from and what that's about. I really think as educationists, we need to understand that more. 
it alarms me slightly, if I'm honest, that teachers aren't given as much training on it as I think they probably need. I think it's covered a little bit. I know it's really, really hard to do teacher training. I've got good friends who train teachers and there's loads to cover. But personally, I think we need to have a greater understanding of that. Um, yeah, sorry, it's a long convoluted answer. Does that... Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting, isn't it, Sonia, that, that, that these aspects are not covered that deeply in teacher training because if you think about a classroom scenario you're, you need you need for your children to feel safe and in a good place in order to be able to learn and yeah. we tend I think in teacher training not not to focus on that bit but to focus on the, the other bits of learning but not on the the safe space they need to be in yeah. and that safe space needs to be sort of external and internal doesn't it it's you know it's so important and it's a big missing I think it's a big chunk that's missing it is and I think so often we see behavior as a particularly in schools we can see behavior as a child is choosing to behave in that way um they're choosing to not listen they're choosing to poke their friend and you know whatever whatever it is or the children I work with you know they're choosing to have a complete meltdown and actually taking that step about that that back a step and trying to understand actually behavior is a communication so often children don't have the words to say what's going on in them and they don't even necessarily know that i'm feeling really scared right now that's why i'm kicking you but it, those feelings are huge and they're really strong so i think for us it's always taking that step and saying what what is that behavior telling me what's going on what's this about is it that just that they're tired or they're hungry or they're a bit overwhelmed and scared you know taking it back rather than presuming they're doing this to annoy me and i think that becomes a really slippery slope because once you've decided that a child is doing something to annoy you it's really really hard to see them in a different frame you know sometimes as adults we really need to work on that and recognize that and change our story I really like Brené Brown she doesn't work in any years at all but I personally I love Brené Brown I think she's brilliant and Brené Brown talks about what's the story that you're bringing and I think that's really relevant for us as practitioners and parents sometimes sometimes a scenario can happen and we immediately jump to a story in our head of what's going on and the story in our head might be, you know, the child really doesn't like being here and he doesn't, he doesn't want to do maths because, he, you know, he's just chosen not to do maths. And we've made up this story, whereas actually the real story might be the child had a really difficult journey into school that morning. That transition was really tricky. Mum shouted at him in the car because he couldn't find something and he's feeling really sad. That's what the story is, not that he's intentionally being tricky because it's maths so it's yeah what's that story and sometimes we need you to stop and ask and I think also so I I worked as one-to-one -one staff in um a key stage two school and um you've made me think about so many things and so many experiences and I feel that I was lucky to um, have an understanding, an interest, and have studied child development and psychotherapy. So for those, I was like, yeah, you know, that really helped me understand what could have been going on for that child. And also understand that just stepping back and being with them 
was enough. I didn't need to jump in straight away. I didn't need to wonder about the emotions straight away because they were so dysregulated that there was no way that that was going to happen or help. It would probably just have made the situation worse. So often I would find myself just sitting in a hallway, in a room, away, quite far away, for because I knew that if I got too close, that would be too much. Yeah. I could see them. I knew they were safe and I didn't need to say anything. They knew I was there. They knew that my being there, that, that was enough for them to know, sorry, yeah. that I cared, yeah. that I was ready. And I would also communicate that. I would say, I'm ready when you are. I'm ready to hear you. I'm ready to wonder with you or whatever yeah. you need. I'm ready when you are. And it's being okay with that in a school when you have so many time pressures and trusting yourself as a practitioner that your process of supporting this child is what's important. And when there's no point going into class if they're dysregulated because they're not going to learn and it's probably going to happen again. So just trusting that you can take that time. I used to have other members of staff walk past me and be like, you know that they're there. I know that they're there. (laughs) I can see them. I know they're safe. We're just taking some time. And it's, it is trusting yourself as a practitioner to know that child and support them the way that you, you know is best. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think that's possible as well by having a good team. You know, so the children that I work with, so that, you know, I have nine children that I'm going to be working with in September. They will all have TAs for some of their time, a bit like what, you know, the support you were giving them. And... For some of those children in September, most of their time in the year will be spent just with that TA because that's the reality of it. They will, you know, they're going to really struggle and that's okay. So let's try and get some positives so that the time in the classroom with everybody is good and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And that, so the being out isn't about time out, it's about time in with a regulated adult is the way we're always talking about it and the phrase that we use. But one of the first things I will be saying next week to my new teams that I'm working with is your job is to love this child. Your job is to love them and to be there for them and to support them. I'm not worried right now about where they're at profile-wise, where they're at learning-wise, your job is to make them feel safe and know that they can trust you and that there is an adult here who is there for them. And that's huge. And if you can get that, brilliant. Then we can do all the other things. (laughs) But that's about having a team as well. So that TA needs to know they've got the backing from the teacher. So I'm as well saying that to the teacher and going, we're not... Unfortunately, in September, I've got seven new teams, which is a little bit tricky. So I don't normally have new teams. I'm normally working with familiar teams, which is great. But trying to, so I will be explaining to those teachers, and I'm sure it'll be fine, but saying, you know, this is, we're not going to worry right now about where they need to be at the end of the year. And I can have that conversation with your head. and I can have that conversation with your Senko. But right now for this child, we need to get them to a place where they're settled and calm and safe because they can't learn until they're there. And that's about them having staff around them who understand that. But those staff who are backing each other. So that if you as a TA are having a moment where you're like, do you know, I I actually can't do this right now. You need to be able to do a hand signal or whatever to the teacher and you do a swap over. And some of the best teams I've seen is where they tag team. 
and that is amazing where the TA can step in and do the rest of the class stuff and the teacher will come in and they just do that tag team and that that works when that works it's a joy <laughs> but that's about staff trusting each other and knowing and recognizing and for us as individuals being able to say this is really hard and right now I'm finding this really difficult I'm being a little bit overwhelmed by this behavior I need some time out and that's okay that is fine we can't always be there at our best and when we know we're not there at our best we do need to just step back for a moment and let somebody else step in take a breather do a few things that's going to help us to regulate ourselves get back to that regulation and then we can step back in i wonder if this links to Sonia, you've talked about offering good enough support in mm. the setting and i wondered if you could explain a bit more what that looks like what does what is good enough support yeah, I mean, that good enough phrase is as much about parenting as it is in settings, I think. I think, um, we, I think we're all under, as parents and as educators, so much pressure to be doing the perfect, you know, to be, get your perfect Ofsted, have your perfect, you know, whatever. And we all know that that's just not realistic. That isn't, that isn't reality. So it's about saying, okay, so what is good enough? What is all right? Um, you know, and that's going to be different for everybody, isn't it? And that's the kind of conversation that you need to have as a team. But quite often, I will get to the point where I have a relationship with the teachers and the teachers might be saying to me, we haven't done this, this and this. And I'll turn around and go, okay, but what have you done? And they tell me what they have done in the week. And I go, that sounds good enough. Is that good enough for you? So it's not like a kind of, here's your list of what's good enough. I can't really do that. But it, it is that realistic. What are the expectations that you've got as an educator? Are they, are they realistic for yourself and for your children? Sometimes what is good enough is to get the children in, to have them arrive to have no major accidents and to survive the day <laughs> and that sounds ridiculous but sometimes that is good enough now another day you could go no actually we i think we could achieve a bit more here but but recognize what's going on you know so early on that first week in september as all the children are just, or first few weeks as children are just beginning to arrive either in their school or in their nursery be real, or childminders, be really realistic about what you can and can't. Have your expectations low, <laughs> I would say. Now, some head teachers might disagree with that, but I think we all need to be real. You know, those early weeks in a big transition, there's a, you know, there's a lot going on there. And it's the same as parents. You know, the classic is you have a new baby and you think that you've got a new baby and a toddler and you think you can still do all those things. No, of course you can't. Be realistic. You know, what's good enough? Sometimes as a new parent, you, you've, got, you've got dressed that day. <laughs> if you've got a baby, a newborn baby and a toddler, sometimes that's good enough. Obviously, it's different within a, an early years practice. But, but be realistic. What is good enough? Actually, don't have... Yes, sometimes it's really good to strive for you know some some good things and, and and to have some good achievements but sometimes I think we just I think sometimes we're too driven and sometimes we need to 
just be kind to ourselves. So I spend a lot of time encouraging staff to be kind to themselves, particularly before Christmas and particularly before the end of terms. I don't know about the end of the school year, particularly in schools, but I think those can be big triggers for people. Um, We all know the period and the run up to Christmas is not much fun, actually. I have to be honest with you, I don't really like being in schools in the run-up to Christmas. Um, I really don't like it when when we practice nativity plays just after half-term, ready for December. It's not much fun for anybody, um, I don't think. So, but be be kind to yourself, be realistic, okay? Sometimes people are saying, but actually the parents are expecting X, Y, and Z, in which case we need to change parents expectation in some ways covid might have been quite good for that interestingly um I, I think maybe there will be some changes that we see that have come about because of covid and it's made people go well actually we can do it differently but yeah be be realistic that's really interesting what you say about covid sonia because i guess also parents have had perhaps a, just a different view of of, of education um and, and have had not everybody, not everyone has been able to, but a lot of parents maybe have had a different kind of involvement in education. So some of the parameters that we've always worked with, we've always done it like that, have had to shift from, yeah. for everybody, for, for the education staff, for the children and for the families. Um, and I think that's a really interesting point that, that actually, and as you say, that phrase good enough speaks to everybody. Um, and I'm assuming as well, of course, being kind to yourself and what's good enough and being re- realistic massively then eventually filters down and speaks to the children as well within your space that you're in. Absolutely. I mean, if we have unrealistic expectations on ourselves as adults, then that's bound to impact the children. You know, particularly when we've got our head, we've got to do this, this, this and this. You know, you're, you're automatically your stress levels are going up and we all know that children will pick up on that. So I can, usually when I arrive in a school or a setting or a nursery as well, if the person who greets me is really stressed, not the reception clerk, not the reception people, they're different, that can be different, but the person from the classroom, if as soon as I meet the person from the nursery room or the classroom, if their stress levels are high, they're pretty good at telling when people's stress levels are quite high. I can guarantee that the group of children are going to be really tricky. They just are. They always are. Because children are like sponges in that way. They will pick up on whatever is going. So often I can have staff saying, oh, the children are being an absolute nightmare today. They're being really, really challenging. And often I'll then say, so how are you feeling? And they might go, oh, I'm really stressed. And, you know, it's because, da, 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 da. But actually, what was the trigger? It may be that the children are picking up on your stress levels. So what can we do right now to help you? What's going to help your stress levels now? And they might go, well, if your children are behaving, no, no, let's take it back. What's going to help you feel a little bit calmer right now? Because if I can get you calmer, then your children will begin to calm. And so it's having those strategies that we all need about, and that really good self-awareness, what helps me to feel a little bit calmer right now and do that. And that, and that links very much to, to well-being, to adult well-being. 
and um, we had something that we wanted to ask you about to do with that Sonia which was to do with um, how important it is for educators to be mindful of their own well-being and also aware of how their own experiences perhaps even as children their own experiences children impact um, their practice now yeah I think it's huge we're hearing the phrase about well-being a lot it's it's become thankfully it's become much more mainstream and that we're 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 hearing about and that's great having said that I think one of the difficulties is that it's now in the language and vocabulary so much that often people are then switching off with it and just going oh yeah yeah that's you know that's like some that's something that the celebrities are talking about and it's all about spending money and I, I can't think about that right now and I think that's really unhelpful and I think the other difficulty sometimes is the idea of well-being of um everything out there is impacting me and there's nothing I can do. So when I, I do a lot of work with staff and schools around well-being, and it's helping people to kind of really break that down and think about on the really small scale, what helps me feel okay. So taking it back to the all about me pack, I talked about the flowers of the, I'm sure holding up a, a flower here, a felted flower that I've made, but I talk about the flower in my garden. So I, I'm really fortunate and I have a garden my garden is a little bit crazy. It's quite long. Um, it's got lots of things in it. It's very unmanaged, although I spend, you wouldn't believe how much time I spend in it. But anyway, it's quite unmanaged. But my garden really helps me to feel calm. It just does. So if I've had a pressurized day or a tricky day, I know just going outside just for 10 minutes doing a bit of weeding, whatever, watering, or even just sitting in the arbor and looking um, looking at the flowers really helps me to, to calm down. So it's, that's well-being. So it's understanding what, A, understanding what are our triggers for us individually. And that can be linked to our childhood, for example. So a trigger for me is I, I grew up with a mum with bipolar. Um, so I've grown up with uh, severe mental health issues in the family for a very long time um, now a number of the families I work with have mental health issues now that for me brings its own baggage now for a long time actually I wouldn't work I intentionally didn't work with parents where there were severe mental health issues and I've kind of reached the point now where I feel like I can but I'm really mindful that if I have a long conversation with a parent who's really depressed that's going to trigger certain things in me because it links back to my feelings about dealing with my own mother. Now, if my own mum, my mum's still alive and her health isn't great, if she's having a bad day, I'm really careful about what I do work-wise. So I still work, obviously. Or, for example, I won't go to see my mum on a day when I'm working with a family that's quite a tricky family. Because to be blunt, I can't deal with those two things. So it's understanding that, and that's about looking after my well-being. So, it, but it, that's about having a really good understanding and reflection on yourself. But in the same way, I can have those conversations with my supervisor. So if I'm aware that a family is triggering me slightly, I will have extra supervision with Ruth to talk it through with her, where she knows my background, she knows what's happened with my own personal family, and she can then bring that to mind. And she might say, actually, Sonia, I wonder whether this is going on. You know, and we can reflect on that and work that through. 
that's part of well-being, having that good supervision and having that good reflection. But then it's also knowing what helps me. So back to the swimming, I swim every day, Monday to Friday. I'm an early morning swimmer at a pool. And that's where I sort things out in my mind. Sometimes it's a really mindful swimming session and sometimes it's just a thrashing things out as I'm going up and down the, the pool. I swim for half an hour and that's great. It's good physically, obviously. It's good for my heart, but it's really good for my head. Not being able to swim in lockdown was really difficult. But then taking that on, I've learned over the last few years that cold water swimming is really good. Perversely, actually, the summer is not quite so good because it's not, it's not really very cold. Um, but we're heading up to it's getting colder. And I'm an all-year-round swimmer. I don't swim in a wetsuit. I'm a skin swimmer, it's described as. Um, so I will be swimming in January as long as it's not lockdown. Um, and that cold water shock is really good mm. for me. So over the last couple of years, even before COVID, we had some quite serious family stuff going on, you know, family, bad illness and whatever. When things were really bad, I just knew I needed to get in the cold water, you know, January, February, whatever. It's such a shock to the system that your mind can't think about anything else because your mind is going, oh, I'm going to die. It's so cold. You're not. It's fine. Um, but it, that is really good for my well-being. No, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody should go out and jump in cold water. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But work out what works for you. So for me, I figured out that's the good thing for my well-being. That's what helps me. So the daily, going in the garden, the swimming every day if I can, and then when, you know, and then the cold water on top. And that mix of things is a good well-being package for me. And it will be different for everyone. But it's having those conversations. So when I'm in schools, I'll often be saying to staff, so what do you do? What are you doing for your well-being on the weekend? What will help you? What will help you tonight? You've had a really difficult day. What are you going to do when you get home? And if they say, I'm going home and working for three hours, I will then say to them, okay, but you need to do something else that's going to help you. What will that be? Can you go for a run? If, and I find out early on what they like. If I know they've got a dog, I might go, can you just go for an extra long walk with your dog? Would that help? Or, okay, you need to do that. Could you listen to some music? Could you watch whatever it is they like? And in the way that we find out what children like, I try and find out early on what, what, what the staff like that I work with so I can say that so I had one member of staff one year who had a really really tricky class but she was a really good canoeist and she had a canoe and she would often go on the river so if it had been a bad day as I was leaving I might go are you going in the canoe tonight and she'd say no I wasn't but I think I will like, yeah go and do that mm -hmm. so it's what is it for you and it's different for all of us isn't it but it's working that out and it strikes me it's also important to it goes back to what you were saying about the team, Sonia, as well. And you said, you know, for you, you have a supervisor or somebody that you can, who knows you, that you can do. Having that person who knows you. And I suppose, arguably, it might, doesn't necessarily need to be in your team and in your workplace. It could be someone that, that outside of the workplace, but someone who knows you and knows what works for you. And you can have, have those conversations with about your day. Or, yeah. And then they can kind of positively trigger I suppose the idea of oh maybe maybe I will go in the canoe later or maybe I will walk the dog or yeah. those things because they know you 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I talk about in training is can you identify five people that you can turn to? And I think five people is quite useful because inevitably one or two of those aren't necessarily going to be accessible and that five might be different. So, so for me, one of those five is my husband, but to be blunt, he doesn't always want to hear about work and fair enough, you know, and the details of work, I can't talk to him necessarily. So within that five is my supervisor, but then also I've got some friends, you know, that might be teammates that I know I can talk to. And we've always got people in our team, some who we're really close to and others less so, and that's okay. But I also have friends. So I've got a friend and, I, you know, for years we've met every Saturday morning for a coffee. She works with young people. I work with children. We didn't even need to talk about our work necessarily. You know, we both get that we work in quite challenging, in quite, in quite challenging situations. Mm-hmm. But just knowing that she knows me so well, you know, she just needs to look. And sometimes she'll say, you are going for a swim later, aren't you? <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. But knowing, having that five is really useful, I think. It's, it's just a useful thing. And at different times, you'll want to talk to different people. You know, and if it's, you know, if your partner, for example, is one of your five, but actually it's your partner that's driving you mad at the moment, then you need to get, you need somebody else to talk to, don't you? Or if it's your, your boss that's driving you a bit nuts, and again, you need somebody else. So that's why the five is quite handy. Yeah. I'm going to go and think about my five now after this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to make a list. I'm a great list maker, so I shall go make a list. (laughs) (laughs) We skipped a question, um, which was, Anya, did you want to, do you want to ask that one? Yeah, I was just going to ask you. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Our question is, and I think this sort of ties in everything quite nicely, you know, communicating with each other, being reflective, using and building emotive language and understanding. So. Um, we know that it can be quite difficult for adults to know when to tell children about change and how much information to give them, especially if the change involves deep emotions for the adult as, as well, such as family changes or illness and bereavement. So do you have any advice for the adults who are supporting children? Yeah, it's a really tricky one. And it's one I see quite a lot. I think, I think, okay, my line is always be really clear and communicate with children is a really first thing. Um, because even if you haven't told them and something big is happening, children know. They just know. Instinctively, they know. So um, the classic is uh, a grandparent is really ill and uh, the parents don't tell the child. You know, it's known that the grandparent is really ill and is dying and they don't tell the child. But when the child sees the grandparent, they, they can see that there's something not right. But also they can tell before that because the parents are really stressed. But it's about telling them enough information and the right information and not giving them too much information. So I tend to see two sides. Sometimes I see parents who won't tell children anything. So an example would be... Um, a family who moved house, they knew they were moving house. They didn't tell the child they were moving house. On the day of moving, they sent them to grandma's and then they pick them up from grandma's and they take them to a new house. And not surprisingly, the child is totally lost and can't, and you know, dysregulated and can't cope, you know. So in that situation, 
the week running up to it, you might say to them, oh, we're moving house, or maybe a few weeks before. Don't give it too much time, but a few weeks before, we're moving house. This is what this means. Let's go and look at the house, those sorts of things. But in this situation, I think where it's difficult is where um, really emotive things. So parents splitting up, um, serious illness, death and bereavement. Those are the really tricky ones. Those are the ones that we can find really hard because us as adults are really struggling to get our heads around it and understand it. When it comes to separation and things like that, um, as an adult, I would always say to the adults, find somebody that you can talk to that you've got that you a bit a bit like our five people find someone that you can talk to that you can work through your emotions that you can maybe even practice what you're going to say to a child and be really clear give the child as much information as they need to know so if it was a situation where mummy and daddy are splitting up you might sit down together and say to the child mummy and daddy aren't going to be living together in the same house anymore we're finding it difficult to live together. We still love you. We're still going to see you. You are going to live with mummy on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you're going to live with daddy on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever it is. Figure that out before and tell them really clearly. So not too much information, but enough information. Um, when it comes to death and bereavement, what I've learned is use the right words. And everybody says that. I mean, that's a kind of common phrase that you will hear when you read around it. Um, children need to know. You need to use the words, daddy has died, mummy has died, granddad has died. If you know a parent is seriously ill, if somebody is seriously ill, again, you need to be saying to them, nanny is really poorly at the moment. Now, if you think that nanny is going to die, then you would, you might, depending on the age of the child, but you would certainly say nanny is really poorly at the moment. If you know that they're about to die, then I would also say that to them. nanny is really poorly and she is going to die soon. We can't, the doctors can't make her better. That's so difficult. I mean, you know, I've, I've been there. I've had to do that with my children. It's really, really hard. Uh, in the last few months, I've been in the really unfortunate situation of supporting one of my best friends and her partner died suddenly of a heart attack and her boys were there and that was horrific and I've had to have really horrible conversations with her boys about the fact that daddy is dead um but we need those conversations we need to be really honest with children I think around the death and bereavement one of the best examples I have ever seen was there was a school in Bath called St Andrews so Bath is where I'm from the school at primary school in Bath and uh, they had an amazing head teacher called Sue East. And she was, a, she was a friend of mine. She was just incredible. Uh, she had cancer and she was dying and she knew she was dying. And in the last few weeks, the school told the children. Um, and uh, the children, and she wrote a letter. She wanted the children to know. So she wrote a letter to the children explaining that she was dying and what that looked like and that she was okay about it she wasn't scared it was the most incredible letter I have ever read um, and her funeral was probably one of the best beautiful funerals I have ever been to a celebration of her life of which the children were involved in now for me if there is ever a way to know how to prepare children for death Sue showed us in bucket loads how to do it um, and they were really difficult conversations. It was really hard for the whole school, but it was managed beautifully 
and my, you know this is a few years ago now my reflection I'm still have contact with that school they've all come through it incredibly well because it was managed so carefully and it was thought about but there were others around them who were supporting them and holding them and I think that's really key is when you're managing difficult situations and we're telling children difficult things have others around you to support you so you need people to support you as the adults who are doing that tell school tell the nursery um, make sure that somebody's checking in with you it may be that you have that conversation and then you ring somebody so you can then have a later conversation with another adult just to kind of do that check-in for you it's all of those sorts of things does that make sense it really does and and i think i'm thinking about the the, the way this conversation has had a, a really a really lovely arc to it this morning that we've had and a lot of it has been about communication, about communication with children, about communication between adults, um, whether it's within your team or whether it's with, with the parents and the families. Um, and I also think that what you said, Sonia, about starting from when they're very young and giving them the language and, and, and pr that preparation time always, to then as we go through life, as you've just told us, and we've, we'll all have our stories, you know, change just happens, whether it's tiny everyday changes like we started off talking about, or whether it's these bigger, deeper emotional changes that can happen at any time in our life. Everything that you've said is about preparing the child from as early as possible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Absolutely. And children can cope with trauma and change. They absolutely can. If the adults around them are supportive and loving and as in the situation where a, a parent dies that's horrific but if those children have got people around them who are holding those remaining people mm. so you know with my friend and, and her boys she has a whole host of people around her who are you know who are holding her who are managing that and that's what we do as adults that's what we need and I think that's what we can do as practitioners we can be part of that you know, so we can hold those, hold those people up when they need it um, and just be aware, you know, be aware of that and aware of the impact we can have. I think as educators, we can do amazing things by having, by communicating, by being clear, by recognising emotions and language and by loving people and loving each other and, you know, holding people up. I think we can, I think we do that well and we don't always recognise it. Yeah. Thank you, Sonia. I think that's a really lovely place to, to end our conversation this morning. It's been wonderful talking to you and really lovely to meet you today. Thank you. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you.